0: Chapter 2 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Simona Russo Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung Translated by Constance Ellen Long Chapter 2, Lecture 3 Experiences Concerning the Psychic Life of the Child, Part 1 Ladies and gentlemen, in our last lecture, we saw how important the emotional processes of childhood are for later life. In today's lecture, I should like to give you some insight into the psychic life of a child through the analysis of a four-year-old girl. It is much to be regretted that there are few among you who have had the opportunity of reading the analysis of Little Hans, Kleiner Hans, which was published by Freud during the current year, I ought to begin by giving you the content of that analysis, so that you might be in a position to compare Freud's results with those obtained by me, and observed the marked astonishing similarity between the unconscious creations of the two children. Without a knowledge of the fundamental analysis of Freud, much in the report of the following case will appear strange, incomprehensible, and perhaps unacceptable to you. I beg you, however, to defer your final judgment and to enter upon the consideration of these new subjects with a kindly disposition, For such pioneer work in virgin soil requires not only the greatest patience on the part of the investigator, but also the unprejudiced attention of his audience. Because the Freudian investigations apparently involved a discussion of the most intimate secrets of sexuality, many people have had a feeling of repulsion against them, and have therefore rejected everything as a matter of course without any real disproof. This, unfortunately, has almost always been the fate of Freud's doctrines up to the present. One must not come to the consideration of these matters with the firm conviction that they do not exist, for it may easily happen that for the prejudice, they really do not exist. One should perhaps assume the author's point of view for the moment and investigate these phenomena under his guidance. Only in this way can the correctness or otherwise of our observations be affirmed. We may err, as all human beings err, but the continual holding up to us of our mistakes, perhaps they are worse than mistakes, does not help us to see things more distinctly. We should prefer to see wherein we err. That should be demonstrated to us in our own sphere of experience. Thus far, however, No one has succeeded in meeting us on our own grounds, nor in giving us a different conception of the things which we ourselves see. We still have to complain that our critics persist in maintaining complete ignorance about the matters in question. The only reason for this is that they have never taken the trouble to become thoroughly acquainted with our method. Had they done this, they would have understood us. The little girl, to whose sagacity and intellectual vivacity we are indebted for the following observations, is a healthy, lively child of emotional temperament. She has never been seriously ill, and never, even in the realm of the nervous system, had there been observed any symptoms prior to this investigation. In the report which follows, we shall have to waive any connected description for it is made up of anecdotes which treat of one experience out of a whole cycle of similar ones and which cannot, therefore, be arranged scientifically and systematically, but must rather be described somewhat in the form of a story. We cannot as yet dispense with this manner of description in our analytical psychology, for we are still far from being able, in all cases, to separate with unerring certainty what is curious from what is typical. When the little daughter, whom we will call Anna, was about three years old, she once had the following conversation with her grandmother. Anna, grandmother, why are you eyes so dim? Grandma, because I'm old. But you will become young again. No. Do you know I shall become older and older, and then I shall die? Well, and then? Then I shall be an angel. And when will you be a little baby again? The child found here welcome opportunity for the provisional solution of a problem. For some time before she had been in the habit of asking her mother whether she would ever have a living doll, a little child, or a little brother. This naturally included the question as to the origin of children. As such questions appear only spontaneously and indirectly, the parents attached no significance to them, but responded to them as lightly and in appearance as carelessly as a child seemed to ask them. Thus she once received from her father the pretty story that children are brought by the stork. Anna had already heard somewhere a more serious version, namely that children are little angels living in heaven and are brought from heaven by the stork. This theory seems to have become the starting point for the investigating activity of the little one. From the conversation with her grandmother, It could be seen that this theory was capable of wide application, namely, it not only solved in a comforting manner the painful idea of parting and dying, but at the same time also the riddle of the origin of children. Such solutions, which kill at least two birds with one stone, were formerly tenaciously adhered to in science, and cannot be removed from the mind of the child without a certain amount of shock. Just as the birth of a little sister was turning point in the history of little Hans, so in this case it was the birth of a brother, which happened when Anna had reached the age of four years. The pregnancy of the mother apparently remained unnoticed, it is, the child never expressed herself on the subject. On the evening before the birth, when labour pains were beginning, the child was in her father's room. He took her on his knee and said, Tell me, what would you say if you should get a little brother tonight? I would kill him, was the prompt answer. The expression to kill looks very serious, but in reality is quite harmless, for to kill and to die in child language signify only to remove, either in the active or in the passive sense, as has already been pointed out a number of times by Freud. To kill, as used by the child, is a harmless word, especially so when we know that the child uses the word kill quite promiscuously for all possible kinds of destruction, removal, demolition, etc. It is nevertheless worthwhile to note this tendency, see the analysis of Kleiner Hans, page 5. The birth occurred early in the morning, and later the father entered the room where Anna slept. She awoke as he came in. He imparted to her the news of the advent of a little brother, which she took with surprise and strained facial expression. The father took her in his arms and carried her into the living room. She first threw a rapid glance at her somewhat pale mother and then displayed something like a mixture of embarrassment and suspicion, as if thinking. Now what else is going to happen, father's impression? She displayed hardly any pleasure at the sight of the new arrival, so that the cool reception she gave it caused general disappointment. During the forenoon, she kept very noticeably away from her mother. This was the more striking, as she was usually much attached to her, but once when her mother was alone, she ran into the room, embraced her and said, Well, aren't you going to die now? Now a part of the conflict in the child's psyche is revealed to us. Though the Stork theory was never really taken seriously, she accepted the fruitful rebirth hypothesis, according to which a person by dying helps a child into life. Accordingly, the mother too must die. Why then should the newborn child, against whom she already felt childish jealousy, cause her pleasure? It was for this reason that she had to seek a favourable opportunity of reassuring herself as to whether the mother was to die, or rather was moved to express the hope that she would not die. With this happy issue, however, the rebirth theory sustained a severe shock. How was it possible now to explain the birth of her little brother and the origin of children in general? There still remained the Stork theory which, though never expressly rejected, had been implicitly waived through the assumption of the rebirth theory. The explanations next attempted unfortunately remained hidden from the parents, as the child went to stay with her grandmother for a few weeks. From the latter's report, the Stork theory was often discussed and was naturally reinforced by the concurrence of those about her. When Anna returned to her parents, She again, on meeting her mother, evinced the same mixture of embarrassment and suspicion which she had displayed after the birth. The impression, though inexplicable, was quite unmistakable to both parents. Her behavior towards the baby was very nice. During her absence, a nurse had come into the house who, on account of her uniform, made a deep impression on Anna. To be sure, the impression at first was quite unfavourable, as she evinced the greatest hostility to her, thus nothing could induce her to allow herself to be undressed and put to sleep by this nurse. Whence this resistance originated, was soon shown in an angry scene near the cradle of the little brother, in which Anna shouted at the nurse, "'This is not your little brother, he is mine!' Gradually, however, she became reconciled to the nurse and began to play nurse herself. She had to have her white cap and apron, and nursed now her little brother and now her doll. In contrast to her former mood, she became unmistakably mournful and dreamy. She often sat for a long time under the table, singing stories and making rhymes, which were partially incomprehensible, but sometimes contained the nurse theme, I am an earth of a green cross. Some of the stories, however, distinctly show the painful feeling striving for expression. Here we meet with a new and important feature in the little one's life. That is, we meet with reveries, even a tendency towards poetic fancies and melancholic attacks. All of them things which we are wont first to encounter at a later period of life, at a time when the youth or maiden is preparing to sever the family tie and to enter independently upon life, but is still held back by an inward painful feeling of homesickness for the warmth of the parental hearth. At such a time the youth begins to replace what is lacking with poetic fancies in order to compensate for the deficiency. To approximate the psychology of a four-year-old child to that of the youth approaching puberty will at first sight seem paradoxical. The relationship lies, however, not in the age, but rather in the mechanism. The allergic reveries express the fact that a part of that love which formerly belonged and should belong to a real object is now introverted, that is, it is turned inward into the subject and there produces an increased imaginative activity. What is the origin of this introversion? Is it a psychological manifestation peculiar to this age, or does it owe its origin to a conflict? This is explained in the following occurrence. It often happened that Anna was disobedient to her mother. She was insolent, saying, I am going back to grandma, mother, but I shall be sad when you leave me, Anna. Oh, but you have my little brother. This reaction towards the mother shows what the little one was really aiming at, with her threats to go away again. She apparently wished to hear what her mother would say to her proposal, that is, to see what attitude her mother would actually assume to her, whether her little brother had not ousted her altogether from her mother's regard. One must, however, give no credence to this little trickster, For the child could readily see and feel that, despite the existence of the little brother, there was nothing essentially lacking in her mother's love. The reproach to which she subjects her mother is therefore unjustified, and to the trained ear this is betrayed by a slightly affected tone. Such an unmistakable tone does not expect to be taken seriously, and hence it obtrudes itself more vehemently. The reproach as such cannot be taken seriously by the mother, for it was only the forerunner of other, and this time more serious resistance. Not long after the conversation narrated above, the following scene took place. Mother Come, we are going into the garden now. Anna You are telling lies. Take care if you are not telling the truth. Mother What are you thinking of? I am telling the truth. Anna No, you are not telling the truth. Mother, you will soon see that I am telling the truth. We are going into the garden now. Anna, indeed, is that true? Is that really true? Are you not lying? Scenes of this kind were repeated a number of times. This time the tone was more rude and more vehement. And at the same time the accent of the word lie betrayed something special which the parents did not understand. Indeed, at first they attributed too little significance to the spontaneous utterances of the child, In this, they merely did what education usually does in general, ex officio. We usually pay little heed to the children in every stage of life. In all essential matters, they are treated as not responsible. And in all unessential matters, they are trained with an automatic precision. Under resistances, there always lies a question, a conflict, of which we hear later, and on other occasions, but usually one forgets to connect the things heard with the resistances. Thus, on another occasion, Anna put to her mother the following questions. Anna, I should like to become a nurse when I grow big. Why did you not become a nurse, mother? Why, as I have become a mother, I have children to nurse anyway. Anna reflecting. Indeed, shall I be a lady like you? And shall I talk to you then?" The mother's answer, again, shows whether the child's question was really directed. Apparently, Anna too would like to have a child to nurse, just as the nurse has. Where the nurse got the little child is quite clear. Anna too could get a child in the same way if she were big. Why did not the mother become such a nurse? That is to say, how did she get a child if not in the same way as the nurse? Like the nurse, Anna too could get a child, but how that fact might be changed in the future, or how she might come to resemble her mother in the matter of getting children, is not clear to her. From this resulted the thoughtful question. Indeed, shall I be a lady like you? Shall I be quite different? The Stork theory evidently had come to naught. The dying theory met a similar fate. Hence, she now thinks one might get a child in the same way as, for example, the nurse got hers. She too could get one in this natural way, but how about the mother who is no nurse and still has children? Looking at the matter from this point of view, Anna asks, Why did you not become a nurse? Namely, why have you not got your child in the natural way? This peculiar, indirect manner of questioning is typical and evidently corresponds with the child's hazy grasp of the problem, unless we assume a certain diplomatic uncertainty prompted by a desire to evade direct questioning. We shall later find an illustration of this possibility. Anna is evidently confronted with a question, where does the child come from? The stork did not bring it, mother did not die, nor did mother get it in the same way as the nurse. She had, however, asked this question before and received information from her father that the stork brings children. This is positively untrue, she can never be deceived on this point. Accordingly, Papa and Mamma and all the others lie. This readily explains her suspicion of the childbirth and her discrediting of her mother. But it also explains another point, namely the elegiac reveries which we have attributed to a partial introversion. We know now what was the real object from which love was removed and uselessly introverted, namely, it had to be taken from the parents who deceived her and refused to tell her the truth. What can this be which must not be uttered? What is going on here? Such were the parenthetic questions of the child, and the answer was, evidently this must be something to be concealed, perhaps something dangerous. Attempts to make her talk and to draw out the truth by means of artful questions were futile, so resistance is placed against resistance and the introversion of love begins. It is evident that the capacity for sublimation in a four-year-old child is still too slightly developed to be capable of performing more than symptomatic services. The mind, therefore depends on another compensation, namely, it resorts to one of the relinquished infantile devices for securing love by force, preferably that of crying and calling the mother at night. This had been diligently practiced and exhausted during her first year. It now returns and corresponding to the period of life has become well determined and equipped with the recent impressions. It was just after the earthquakes in Messina, and this event was discussed at the table. Anna was extremely interested in everything. She repeatedly asked her grandmother to tell her how the earth shook, how the houses fell in and many people lost their lives. After this, she had nocturnal fears. She could not be alone. Her mother had to go to her and stay with her, otherwise she feared that an earthquake would happen, that the house would fall and kill her. During the day, too, she was much occupied with such thoughts. While waking with her mother, she anointed her with such questions as, will the house be standing when we return home? Are you sure there is no earthquake at home? Will papa still be living? About every stone lying in the road, she asked whether it was from an earthquake, a building in course of erection was a house destroyed by the earthquake, etc. Finally, she began to cry out frequently at night, that the earthquake was coming and that she heard the thunder. Each evening she had to be solemnly assured that there was no earthquake coming. Many means of calming her were tried, thus she was told, for example, that earthquakes only occur where there are volcanoes, but then she had to be satisfied that the mountains surrounding the city were not volcanoes. This reasoning led the child by degrees to a desire for learning, as strong as it was unnatural at her age, which showed itself in a demand that all the geological atlases and textbooks should be brought to her from her father's library. For hours she ramaged through these works looking for pictures of volcanoes and earthquakes and asking questions continually. Here we are confronted by an energetic effort to sublimate the fear into an eager desire for knowledge, which at this age made a decidedly premature exaction. But how many a gifted child suffering in exactly the same way with such problems is coseted through this untimely sublimation by no means to its advantage, for by favouring sublimation at this age one is merely strengthening manifestation of neurosis. The root of the eager desire for knowledge is fear, and fear is the expression of a converted libido, that is, it is the expression of an introversion which has become neurotic, which at this age is neither necessary nor favourable for the development of the child. Whether this eager desire for knowledge was ultimately directed is explained by a series of questions which arose almost daily. Why is Sophie, a younger sister, younger than I? Where was Freddie, the little brother, before? Was he in heaven? What was he doing there? Why did he come down just now? Why not before? This state of affairs led the father to decide that the mother should tell the child when occasion offers the truth concerning the origin of the little brother. This having been done, Anna soon thereafter asked about the stork. Her mother told her that the story of the stork was not true, but that Freddy grew inside her mother like the flower in a plant. At first he was very little, and then he became bigger and bigger, as a plant does. She listened attentively, without the slightest surprise, and then asked. But did he come out all by himself? Mother, yes. Anna, but he cannot walk. Sophie, then he crawled out. Anna, overhearing with her little sister's answer, is there a hole here, pointing to the breast, or did he come out of the mouth? Who came out of the nurse? She then interrupted herself and exclaimed, no, no, the stork brought baby brother down from heaven. She soon left the subject and again wished to see pictures of volcanoes. During the evening following this conversation, she was calm. The sudden explanation produced in the child a whole series of ideas which manifested themselves in certain questions. New, unexpected perspectives were open. She rapidly approached the main problem, namely the question, where did the baby come out? Was it from a hole in the breast or from the mouth? Both suppositions are entirely qualified to firm acceptable theories. We even meet with recently married women who still entertain the theory of the hole in the abdominal wall or of the caesarean section. This is supposed to betray a very unusual degree of innocence. But, as a matter of fact, it is not innocence. We are always dealing in such cases with infantile sexual activities, which in later life have brought the vias naturales into ill repute. It may be asked where the child got the absurd idea that there is a hole in the breast, or that the birth takes place through the mouth. Why did she not select one of the natural openings existing in the pelvis, from which things come out daily? The explanation is simple. Very shortly before, Our little one had invoked some educational criticism from her mother by a heightened interest in both openings, with her remarkable expressions, an interest not always in accord with the requirements of cleanliness and decorum. Then, for the first time she became acquainted with the exceptional laws relating to these bodily regions, and being a sensitive child, she soon learned that there was something here to be tabooed. This region, therefore, must not be referred to. Anna had simply shown herself docile and had so adjusted herself to the cultural demands that she thought at least spoke of the simplest things last. The incorrect theories substituted for correct laws sometimes persist for years until brusque explanations come from without. It is therefore no wonder that such theories... The forming of an adherence to which are favoured, even by parents and educationalists, should later become determinants for important symptoms in a neurosis, or of delusions in a psychosis, just as I have shown that in Dementia precox, what had existed in the mind for years always remains somewhere, though it may be hidden under compensations of a seemingly different kind. But even before this question was settled as to where the child really comes out, a new problem obtruded itself. The children came out of the mother, but how is it with the nurse? Did someone come out of her too? This question was followed by the remark, No, no, the stork brought down baby brother from heaven. What is there peculiar about the fact that nobody came out of the nurse? We recall that Anna identified herself with the nurse, and planned to become a nurse later, for she too would like to have a child, and she could have one as well as the nurse. But now, when it is known that the little brother grew in Mama, how is it now? This disquieting question is averted by a quick return to the Stork Angel theory, which has never been really believed and which after a few trials is at last definitely abandoned. Two questions, however, remain in the air. The first reads as follows. Where does the child come out? The second, a considerably more difficult one, reads How does it happen that mamma has children while the nurse and the servants do not? All these questions did not at first manifest themselves. End of part 1 of lecture 3 from chapter 2